Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Karen Hinson, and as always, I'm here with Nathan Wagnon. What's up? What up, Nathan? Oh, I'm just getting ready to talk about the end of the world. It's casual. <laughs> very, it's very simple stuff, so we're excited that you're going to listen. Let's uh, take Today, we're going to finish our conversation with Scott Duvall on the Book of Revelation. We're back this week with Dr. Scott Duvall, the Fuller Professor of Biblical Studies and the Chair of Biblical Studies at Washita Baptist University. He is the author of The Heart of Revelation, which I would encourage you guys to check out. You can get that wherever books are sold. And also the contributor to the Teach the Text commentary series, he wrote the commentary on the book of Revelation. So Scott, man, it's great to have you back in the studio with us today. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. So we ended last week just talking about I mean, we talked about a lot of stuff last week. I mean, we talked about what is the book, what kind of genre, the historical setting, what was going on, all those kind of things. And so I think to kind of launch us into the actual content of the book, why don't you continue kind of finish setting the stage for us by walking us through like, who are the characters in this story and what is going on? Yeah, Revelation is is a book that almost resists outlining. It sort of spirals forward. You have several series of judgments, and at the end of each one of those, you're at the end of history, and then you kind of start over again. So sometimes it's more helpful just to think about the main characters in the book. And the main character is the triune God, Mm. Father, Son, and Spirit. He is, from the very beginning, the main character. You even have John beginning his prophetic apocalyptic letter with these words, Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Uh, That's, I think, a reference to to God the Father. From the seven spirits before his throne, and I think that refers to the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And from that sort of welcome at the doorway to God as the main character, he runs through the entire book. Mm. So it's that's beautiful. Yeah. As you think about God himself, he's characterized in Revelation as the Almighty, God the Father Almighty. And perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about about that in a moment. So you have the triune God. Then you have the people of God. And the people of God are struggling. This world's broken. And you see them in the midst of this cosmic battle between God and his forces and Satan and his forces and you you just feel the tension as you read chapters two and three that the church is facing. And the truth is, some are faithful, and they need a lot of comfort, and some are compromising, yep. and they need a lot of warning. Yeah. So almost like any prophetic book, you have this back and forth between comfort and warning, comfort mm-hmm. and warning. It's kind of like you know raising a child. Some people need a <laughs> hug. Other people need a kick in the pants. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. So the people of God— very much in the struggle and you have evil actors in this book Mm. so this in this epic drama the story of good versus evil on a very grand scale uh you know you'll have satan who in chapter 12 is described probably more than he's described any other place in the bible Mm. and then you have the beast from the sea sometimes called the antichrist and the beast from the earth sometimes called the false prophet and you have an unholy trinity, you might say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Father, Son, and Spirit, and then Satan and the two beasts. Yep. So both of these gods have followers. And it's you a cosmic have, battle. It is. You have yeah. wicked 
humans in this book, and they're referred to as the earth dwellers. Mm. Uh, they are the, or sometimes translated, the inhabitants of the earth. Anytime you read that in Revelation, it's always a negative reference to unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Then you have faithful followers, and then you have this group called the nations. And the nations are up for grabs, mm. honestly. Mm. Um, so we have a mission to the nations. We bear witness to the nations. And at the end, the nations will bring their glory into yeah, the yeah, new yeah, creation. Yeah, that's good. So it's, a, it's just an amazing, beautiful thing. But there are also nations that side with the evil one. You know, just think about uh, Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or even something like The Hunger Games. I mean, you, you're, this is just this conflict between good and evil. And then on top of that, there are lots and lots of angels. Yeah. So there is this cosmic battle between good and evil, but this is not, we're not advocating like some sort of dualism, like, like the outcome is unknown no, or something no, like that. No. Satan is God's opponent. But he's not God's opposite. Mm. He is not on the same level. Yeah. Uh, traditionally, he's been understood as a created being, created good, but one who has gone rogue and uh, who has rebelled. So he's not on the same level. And in the end, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Mm-hmm. He is condemned and, and judged eternally. So it's interesting, too, to see how from the beginning of the story where this serpent which is kind of this um, embodiment some people believe of satan who's tempting and pulling humanity into his rebellion right he's lying to them he's deceiving them and is successful and so um that now this evil presence kind of permeates all of god's good creation and even in the beginning of Revelation, where it's talking about multiple times, the actual name Satan is used, where he's like, hey, these Jews who think that they're God followers, but really they belong to the synagogue of Satan. That's right. It's like, what the heck, man? Yeah. And that's where you see, again, that we talked about last week, this apocalyptic literature is blending kind of the material world with the, what's going on on a cosmic level. And you're seeing like, oh, these people think that they're God's followers, but really what's going on is there's this evil power that is energizing them, driving them, pushing them forward. And like you said, there's this in-between crowd that's like, hey, we're in a rescue mission. Like God is on a rescue mission and we're laboring with him. Even in the church, you have three groups. You have the faithful Mm -hmm. who are very much following Jesus. And then you have those false teachers who are very much rebelling against the Lord And probably their line is, listen, it's okay to bow down to Caesar and to follow Jesus as Lord at the same time. You can have it both ways. Mm. And then you have this group in the middle that's really torn. Mm. Um, And so the battle is for, in a sense, those who who haven't yet completely devoted themselves to one or the other. And a lot of similarities between then and now. Yeah, I was about to say. say, (laughs) You made the book much more relatable in just a few sentences. Yeah. Okay, so now we have a good understanding of who's in the book, who's at play, who's in the battle. Help us understand some of the major themes that are going on. Help us understand some of the broader concepts that would give us a better understanding of the book. Again, I think we begin with God. And just maybe a little bit about each member of the Trinity. God the Father in Revelation is often portrayed as God the Almighty. And we're able to visit Pergamum, and there is a, a piece of marble on which is carved the term autocrator, 
with reference to Caesar. Caesar is ruler over some. He is mighty, Krator. He's mighty over a place or some. And Revelation describes God as God the Almighty, Panta Krator. And it's it's a way of saying God is sovereign over Caesar, the Caesars of this world. Yeah, not some. All. all. That's right. Yeah. So Panta is all. Yeah. That's right. And then Jesus Christ is portrayed as the lion and the lamb. Hmm. He is the lamb who was slain. And this shows up in the very beginning, especially in chapter five. And that's a reference to his crucifixion, to his resurrection, to his incarnation to begin with. The lamb has come among us as the one who would give himself for us. I mean, this is the essence of the gospel. But he's also portrayed as a lion. John says, I heard about... uh, heard about this lion and I saw a lamb. Mm. So he's combining these two. And the the lion is the resurrection, ascension. I'm returning as a warrior, Jesus. And you have both elements, both aspects of Jesus's character as the lion and the lamb. And that's really been captured well in a lot of music. Um, Great stuff. And then the Holy Spirit. You might think the spirit is, is never mentioned in Revelation, but there are several allusions that I think refer to the spirit and you have one at the very beginning of the book. And the idea is, as you, as you think more about the spirit and revelation, that the spirit is the one who connects God almighty to this world. Mm -hmm. The spirit moves out from the throne using images like water, a river that flows from the throne. Mm. So the spirit is how we experience God's presence now. And that is, the spirit is alive and well in revelation at the end of, of each of the seven messages, listen to what the spirit is saying to yeah, the churches. Yeah, yeah. So cool stuff there. Yeah, it's great. So we begin with God. Then you move to the people of God and you have again, some who are faithful and they need comfort and some who are compromising and they need a lot of warning. One of the things that revelation makes very clear is that the people of God can expect to suffer persecution mm-hmm. And I find it interesting these days, you you have some Christians, I think, especially in America, who feel like we're never going to get to the place where we will suffer persecution. <laughs> I've just had uh, some of my students read the book, uh, The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin, which is a story of uh, just unbelievable faith in the midst of persecution, and mm. it will it will rock your world, but John says from the beginning, we're partners in the tribulation, in the persecution. We're going to experience this. But the good news in Revelation is that we are protected spiritually. We are sealed and guarded. And I think this actually refers to the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. who, even though we might die physically and the people of God have, have been martyred throughout history, God will protect us spiritually and preserve us for and eternity with him in the new creation. Yeah, I think in the Gospels, you see Jesus for sure is going, hey, if they persecute me and kill me, what do you think they're going to do to you? You know? <laughs> well, I he mean, said in John 17, he says, Father, I don't, I pray you won't take them out of this world, but that you will protect, protect them, them from, from the it. evil yeah, one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then right before John 17, yeah. in this world, 
you are well, going to have trouble. Like, and that if, word if you is, know, that's the word for tribulation. Yeah, it's tribulation. Actually. Yeah, you will, you will experience this. So if you want to know what God promises, I mean, it's promised that you will be persecuted. Um, you will experience tribulation. But the second part of that is, but, which is the whole theme of Revelation, but persevere, take heart, have hope because I've overcome the world. Absolutely. Yeah. So another theme is mission, and it's kind of coupled with perseverance. So this is where this touches our lives in in huge ways. The main mission of Revelation is to to be a faithful witness in how you live and what you say. Mm. And as we do that, we will please the Lord and honor the Lord. And, you know, it it reminds you of the Great Commission. And Mm. it's very plain language stuff here. And then perseverance. I would say maybe the main theme of the entire book is in chapter 12, where this is being explained and it says they conquered him Mm -hmm. the people of god conquered the evil one by the blood of the lamb in other words the work of christ by the word of their testimony their their confession of faith and their witness for they did not love their lives to the point of death in other words they persevered yeah which is so fascinating because the power structures of the world are wielding a weapon that is taking the lives of people. And so you have this kind of like military conquest. And yet what you see in revelation 12 is that the conquest of Jesus is the cross. He's laying his life down. Um, He's conquering people by his blood, right? Which is really fascinating. And the word of his testimony. And then these people, the people who are following him are not loving their lives even when they're faced with death. And so this faithful witness is very much a, hey, you can kill me, but you're not going to kill what God's doing here. In no. fact, you're releasing it, you know? And that that's, again, if we're looking at the contrasts of what what is Rome doing? Rome is conquering through the sword. Right. It's like Islam. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, sort of. But yeah, more more yes than no. And yet here you have Christianity going, no, actually the enthronement of the son of God is that he is the slain one. Right. Well, it like really reframes this whole cosmic battle that's going on because God has already won. And yep. so he's oh, not yeah. calling his people to pick up their weapons and fight. Yeah. He's like, I already got this. Y'all need to chill out and love people because yeah. that's what Christ did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so we overcome by being overcome, mm. we overcome by imitating the slain lamb. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a great thing to think about. Yeah. Um, I think discipleship in Revelation is following the lamb with your whole life to the very end of your life, even if it means suffering. And when, when you do that, you overcome. So perseverance is a huge theme. Yeah. One point about discipleship here is I think a lot of times people are will think like, hey, if you're really a follower of Jesus, almost like the uh, some of the early guys in the primitive church were thinking, they very much saw martyrdom as a true sign of discipleship. And some of those guys went way too far, you know, because oh, yeah. it was like, yeah. hey, no, following Jesus is following him in his way and responding to what he's calling you to do. Absolutely. And to be frank, a very small percentage of Christians is he actually asking us to physically lay down our lives? Right. 
Right. But I think the point is, but if that is what he has for you, mm. then discipleship looks like martyr, like physical martyrdom. Right. But the principle of it is, is I'm going to follow the slain one wherever he leads me, even if right that that point yeah you have a vision in chapter 6 that has martyrs under the altar mm-hmm. crying out to god how long until you vindicate bring justice yeah. i think that's almost an image of the martyr church mm. not necessarily that all of us will die for our faith but we have to wrestle with this willingness mm-hmm. to be faithful mm-hmm. yeah, even at at great cost mm-hmm. and i think that's probably what revelation's calling us to it's a tremendous book of worship Mm. It's the Psalms of the New Testament. So many worship songs that we sing today are are rooted in Revelation. The Hallelujah Chorus. <laughs> Stand up, man. <laughs> no right, yeah, Queen Victoria. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, the song I've I've really been fond of lately. Is he worthy? Yeah, is straight out oh, of, yeah. of chapter five. Totally. Who is worthy to open the to scroll? Open the, yeah. yeah. So then it's a book about enemies. Um, the unholy trinity, wicked humans, we're fighting a battle, and we have to fight this war in heavenly ways. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying, that you just, you can't take, you know, the American military machine and superimpose on Revelation and think it's just going to turn out beautiful. Right. In God's kingdom, we fight differently because, as you said, we've already won. So we are operating from a place of victory we are living out the victory. We're we're Bearing incarnating yep. the, the yep. victory. Yeah, I love it. And then probably the last one is the end, uh, <laughs> and we can we can talk more about this perhaps. But the enemies are judged. The unholy trinity, wicked humans, they are judged by the Lord. He brings justice. He avenges the blood of his people. And then you're left with. By the way, the way God does that's very interesting in Revelation. He often as one student uh, of mine once said, uh, evil eats itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he often lets evil destroy itself. Yeah. And so what you'll see are these, these evil partners turning on one another mm-hmm. and self-destructing. And then God judges evil. He brings justice. But all along, God is very patient. Yeah, Throughout the yeah. book, he gives repeated opportunities to repent. And I reminded of what C.S. Lewis said about hell. He said, you know, hell, this is a paraphrase, but hell is when all of our lives we tell God to go away and leave us alone. And God finally says, okay, I can just almost picture our loving father, you know, weeping as these people refuse to turn back to him. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a tragedy. And I think that's such an important point to remember God's character in the midst of it. Because as you read Revelation, you can read about the judgments and think, where is he? I know. Why is he heaping this horrid monstrosity upon these people? And you have to see, no, he's asked them to repent over and over. And when they don't, he does weep. I think so. Yeah. One of the, one of the repeated phrases in Revelation is, um, even after all of this, they, they did not. They repent. did not repent. Yeah, yeah multiple. So, it, times. so it's almost like sometimes when I uh, teach this book or talk to people about it, I'm like, what you see is this. It's like an escalation of force. It's like, hey, this and no repentance. So, like as a loving father, I'm gonna turn up the heat a little bit. And even after that, no repentance. And as a loving father, I'm gonna turn up the heat a little bit. And even after that, no repentance. And then finally, like you said with Lewis, the Lord is like, hey, if if you're not going to say to me, thy will be done, I'm going to say to you, 
thy will be done. People are creating for themselves. They're becoming, uh, like the New Testament says, creatures of wrath. Right. Who have, like Romans 2, 5 says, they've stored up wrath for themselves. They're eating themselves. And it's... Uh God, what more can he do? Yeah, right. The The judgment of God ultimately, I think, flows out of the love of God told, yeah, told. in that. Well, let me put it this way. When I think about stomaching these judgment visions, I think, what would I do if someone tried to harm our three daughters or our three granddaughters? Mm. And I I feel, <laughs> I feel that mm, yeah, yeah, deeply. Yeah, yeah. And so when when the world you know, persecutes and martyrs the people of God, you know, God's heart breaks in a different way. Mm. But I still think he would much rather these people repent and come come totally. back to him. That's why they were created. Yeah, a lot of times people read this book and, you know, if they're coming at it from a, again, an individualistic standpoint and don't understand the context or the character of God, then they may walk away and be like, man, this is just really mean, you know? And it's like, hey, I wonder if you understand the biblical narrative and you understand the character and nature of God, the way that he's revealed himself all along, then I think it. this book begs the question, like, how do you think this makes God feel, you know? Big time. When he's sitting there going, hey, guys, I, I literally don't know what else to do. Yeah. But I'm not just going to let this go on forever. That would malign the goodness of my character. Right. Um, and so I'm giving you as many chances as is possible. And you're just saying no. Yeah. Yep. It's really sad. When you think about God's judgment of evil in the book of Revelation, there are two particular sins that come back over and over and over and over. One is idolatry, where they worship false gods. Caesar becomes a god. Rome becomes a god. They become a god unto themselves. The other one is immorality. Mm. And often in the Roman Empire, these were combined. Yeah. So you would have unbelievable perversion used in the worship of the emperor with temple prostitutes and just the whole bit. And so I think there's a huge parallel with those two particular things in, in our culture that Christians really have to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. So how does the book end? One of the uh, one of the most exciting parts about studying Revelation is to see how the whole story ends. Remember, Revelation is not just the conclusion of the New Testament. It is the final chapter in the entire biblical meta-narrative. Mm -hmm. It is the closing chapter. So if the book is closed to people, it's like you, you watch the whole series and – you know, don't watch the final episode. You read the whole book and not the final chapter. It's just really sad. Mm -hmm. So we begin, I think, with maybe our misconceptions about heaven. I don't know about, about you guys, but I grew up with a really dreadful picture of heaven. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was boring. It was sterile. You go to this place in the sky. There may be a few angels there. You're not really sure what to do with them. You know, kind of cloudy, white smoke, maybe some pearly gates, St. Peter's letting people in or telling them to take a hike. Everybody's in white, and you're in this church building in a pew singing hymns forever. Forever. And I thought, I don't want to go no. there. That doesn't sound good to you? No. <laughs> Is this heaven uh -oh. or hell? <laughs> Help us just... Like one side note, help us understand where that comes from. Like, why do all of us think that? I give a lot of credit to 
to our hymnology, to be mm-hmm. honest, mm-hmm. because when you try to capture some of these images that are in Revelation and other parts of the Bible that speak about the end, and you sing about things like pearly gates, and you flatten those into just one line, and over time, people lose the whole context, and they have no clue what this means, and they start singing, and then they, they use that to reinvent stuff. Yeah. And then you have, you know, Geico commercials with yeah. with yeah. all of this. Folk then, theology. Yeah. yeah. So it just gets really confused. Yeah. And weird. So if you look at what it is, I've got an alliteration for you. Okay. Four Ps. How about this? <laughs> First of all, it's promise. God has said throughout the Old Testament, I will be your God. You'll be my people. And I will live with you. Mm. In Revelation... It's reversed. I will live with you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people because it's fulfilled. Yeah. So it is a promise ultimately of living in the presence of God. This is why we were made. God didn't need us. He had perfect community within the Trinity. Mm. So he creates in order to love. And his desire, I think, was for us to live with him. And to enjoy his presence and, and all that that means. So, you know, it's it's a promise of of God's presence. What he began in Genesis that he wanted to keep going and was derailed, he has finally finished at the end of Revelation. Yeah, it's a recreation. It is. Yeah. You, you almost have to just wipe the slate clean on your understanding of heaven. It's a place. And this is where you begin to to put some pieces back together. In Revelation, it's not heaven. It's the new heaven and the new earth. If you can just imagine biblical cosmology at the very top of everything is the throne of God. That's the center of reality. Then you have what we would call the the sky, Mm -hmm. and then you have land, and then underneath would be the realm of the dead. And so when the sky is rolled back as a scroll, you recognize that from a hymn, then the very center of reality descends to live among the people. The temple becomes, it just engulfs the people of God. Mm -hmm. And so this new heaven and new earth, it takes on, if you're going to read this right, I think you have to think more about this earth. Yeah, absolutely. Than you do the mischaracterization of heaven. Yeah, I was just with a group the other day and they were asking me questions about heaven. And I was like, hey, don't think about it like you're floating on clouds. With wings shooting Cupid arrows at each other. I mean, who, who, the, who the heck wants to do that? You know, the biblical picture of it is, and then I pointed outside to the trees and the wind and, you know, the buildings and uh, yeah, everything. I was like, hey, it's that, but yeah. just not broken. Well, Re- like, recreated. The, the yeah. physicality of it. We're okay with the physicality, the material in Genesis 1 and 2, but all of a sudden we get to Revelation. We're like, nix that. We're out. We don't want it to oh. be a physical material world. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Like the world it's burns great. up and we go somewhere yeah. else. Invisible. It's like, wait, yeah, like, wait a minute. Wait, wait what? No, God <laughs> redeems. God redeems. Yeah. He redeems his people. He redeems the earth. Yeah, his material creation is a good thing. Yeah. And what you see at the end is the is that the tainted part of it is gone. And instead of having a an archetype temple on a tainted, distorted um, material world, you have a remade world where the entire world is permeated with the presence of God. Hallelujah. I mean, our bodies are resurrected. Yeah. 
We physically. get res- yeah, lit- physically. literally physically. Our yeah. bodies are resurrected for life in in a new heaven and new earth. So if you imagine, if you just kind of you know imagine that you're in the most beautiful place you know anything about, and you're surrounded by the people who love you and who love Jesus, and there's no Satan and there's no sin, and you'll never do anything to disappoint anybody. Mm. Um, you'll never be tempted. Mm. And life is is a whole life of worship. Sometimes you sing, sometimes you have conversations, sometimes you work, sometimes you walk, and you are in the presence of God. And you, heck, yeah, I want to go there and live forever. Even just when I go to just kind of beautiful places now, I'm, I was in Colorado last summer, and I'm uh, on a walk with my family and I'm looking around. It's a beautiful day, like no clouds in the sky, the mountains, the breeze, the flowers, the everything. And the thing that went through my head was, man, what's this going to look like when it's not broken? I know. What? See, I that's think crazy. Some places. Like, colors you've never seen. <laughs> and like, because the Romans 8 is really clear about this. Like creation itself has been suppressed. It's been Fallen. subjected. Absolutely. You know? It's broken. Yeah. So what's it going to look like when it's not broken? It's going to be amazing. It, Crazy. Revelation describes it as a garden and a city. And so everything you love about the city and nothing you hate. <laughs> and then a garden. Don't think of a flower garden. Think of a national park. Right, right, right. Freaking Yellowstone. And, you know, it's going to be filled with people, which is kind of the next P, who love Jesus but won't all look like you. Me, mm-hmm. it's multi a multicultural people the of God, nations. every tribe and people and language and nation, and you know I can imagine sharing in their cultures. Yeah, and you got time to learn their languages, eat their food, <laughs> <laughs> travel. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and all of this is an act of worship. It's not mm. that you're in a pew singing seven hundred stanzas of "Just as I Am" or something. I mean, you are. As the people of God, you are bringing your glory into the new heaven and new earth. Uh, so every element of, of who you are as a people now will be brought into this new creation and celebrated. It won't divide us any longer. Our differences will, will be celebrated and be another way of saying, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Mm. And finally, it's most importantly, it's, it's presence. Mm. I mean, God's the center of everything. We live in the holy of holies. And I think we're going to experience God in ways that we can't even imagine. I think when in the beginning, the Hebrews talk about shalom. Neil Planning has written a book, uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And shalom is the way it's supposed to be. Mm. So what, what our hearts crave will be satisfied in the presence of God as we experience everything as it should be, as it was meant to be, and it will be safe. So everyone who's experienced some kind of abuse or violation will be safe. Mm. It will be beautiful. It will be forever with people who love you and, and people you love. And it's just almost indescribable. I love the that little some of the most beautiful literature probably ever written, how John closes, where he just says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and yeah. there will no longer be any death yeah. or mourning or crying, or crying or pain. Or pain. Yeah. The old things are gone. gone. 
and yeah. the, the new is here. You know, as a dad and granddad, you've had your, your child fall down and, you know, bust it and come to you and the tears are flowing mm-hmm. and you take your hand and you wipe them away. And, yep. and it's, it's, which so, is a very tender, oh, intimate yeah. interaction. And, and God wipes them away with his hand. That's mm-hmm. just, that's mm-hmm. just an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. So you think about things like books and music and road trips and friends and teammates and late night talks and great food. And I just see this being part of the new creation because I think that's pretty much what God had in mind when this whole thing started. So we go from from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane to the Garden and the new creation, and it tells the whole story of Scripture. It's an amazing and beautiful thing. Man, there's something about this that when we talk about it, something inside of me wakes up. I know. You know? Yeah. Like, what is that? I mean, Lewis talks about like this yearning for another place, uh, something that's beyond what we experience. And that's just really, that's really interesting. Yeah. I think sometimes when you've heard it said they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I mean, you can stick your head in the clouds, but. I think that the opposite's actually happening to a lot of people today. They have no vision of hope. So hope is never imported into their lives in a, in a grand and monumental way. So when you get inside Revelation, you put on those virtual reality goggles and, and you see the whole thing unfold and God wins and you have the new creation, you take them off and you go back into your world and things are different. Yeah. You live with hope. You realize that God has something really big in store because of something really big he's already done. And uh, you, you can live differently. And it's the transforming vision, to be sure. So what does Revelation have to do with us today? I mean, here's this book that's written in the first century. Christians are persecuted. And like we said last week, there's kind of these two extremes of like people obsess about it and other people are scared by it or they just ignore it. And yet there's this middle way that um, this book is still really applicable to us today. So walk us through, how, how should we think about that? Yeah, you know, it seems like after, after spending a lot of time with the book and you come to this question, things kind of slow down and get real simple. I think first of all, you need to be part of a community. You really need to be in a place where you can say, I am vitally connected to the people of God. And, and I have friends who, who love Jesus, and, and we walk together through this because it's, it's really tough to do anything on a grand scale individualistically. And so I think that's the first thing. Second thing is to realize that this world is not our home. As Peter says, we're aliens and strangers. So you're going to face opposition. Mm. And if you try to please everyone, make everybody happy, you're going to be a tortured soul. You have to expect that not everyone will like you. And there will be times when because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be, if not persecuted, at least pressured or rejected. Called a bigot or non-inclusive or... I mean, these are some of the just common terms that are flying around today. And we don't, we don't want to seek that. No. But if we're faithful, we shouldn't, it's going to come. We shouldn't be surprised by yeah. it. Let me say it this way. If you don't experience it, 
you should question if you're being faithful. I think so. Yep. And my dad used to say, son, if you're not encountering resistance, not all the time, but on a consistent basis, then you're going the wrong way. Yeah. Another thing that, that hits me is that our prophetic mission is really important. Mm-hmm. We're surrounded by the nations who are sort of up for grabs, and our task is to love and speak truth and care and serve and let them see a life that will draw them to the ways of the Lord. And then finally, hope. You know, although we've just talked about, you have, <laughs> you have this multicultural people journeying toward this paradise in the presence of God. Mm. And if that doesn't give you hope, I don't, I don't know what will, because uh, it's unfading. Mm. It cannot be tarnished or it can't lose its value like your stock portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's there. Yeah. It's secure. Yeah. And, and I think people need hope. If you don't have hope, it's really hard to live. It's hard to be faithful. It's hard to love. So I think faith and love in many ways are undergirded by hope. Hmm. I love the way C.S. Lewis ends the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle. When you have this picture of the new Narnia, you know, which, like he says, bears of uncanny resemblance to the old one. Amen. But just fuller, <laughs> bigger. Yeah. Everything is the way it was supposed to be. And you see this movement of these people and the, the, the horse actually is crying out further up, further, further in. Up. Yeah. And that... The further up you go and the further in you go, the bigger it gets. The inside is bigger than the outside. So cool. But then the last line of the entire series, he says, he says, but this isn't the end of the story. This is the beginning of the new one where every chapter is better than the one before. I get goosebumps every time. Every That's single time. That's such a great quote. Wow, And it gets to this idea in, in theological circles, we call it the inscrutability of God, which is we will be with him forever and we'll never get to the end of him. No. What the heck is that? Always growing in the knowledge and his love and, and an understanding of who he is and still never reach all no. of who God is. No. And experience, I think, the main thing, I think, the main theme of all of this is that you will never reach, and I know this can be really hard to believe, but I would just, maybe if you're hearing my voice, you can just hear this, that you'll never reach the end of the love of God. Nope. Never. Ever. It's like Paul says in Ephesians, it's something that surpasses knowledge. One of the greatest theologians of any period, but especially uh, recent history, is Karl Barth. And, you, you know, people may not agree with everything that he said or written, but the story's told of someone asking him one time, Dr. Barton, all of your great learning and all that you've written and all of your study, what is the greatest theological truth that you've ever discovered? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, mm. or the Bible tells me so. Come on. Mm. Good stuff. Deep in. 
But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is he? Mm-hmm.